So we're beginning our series in the book of James, which you'll find at the end of uh, your New Testament after the book of Hebrews. Uh, Today's talk is entitled The Testing of Your Faith, and that's in the first little section of chapter 1. Now we're going to take a reading, uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through to 18. Uh, We're going to consider this whole portion over the next two weeks, uh, this week and next week. Uh, This week's focus will be verses 1 through to 12. Um, But let's take the reading, uh, James chapter 1. If you're following in a blue Bible, it's page 1213. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because... Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after sin has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So our focus is down to verse 12 today, the testing of your faith. Before we get any further, you need some background to this. Uh, James, who is James and to whom is he writing and why is he writing? I'm persuaded that this James that we're reading, um, his writing here together is uh, the brother or the half-brother technically being correct of the Lord Jesus. There are a number of Jameses that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, You might remember there were two Jameses that are mentioned as disciples of the Lord Jesus, James the son of Alphaeus and James the son of Zebedee who was the brother of John. It's, It's neither of those. This is the Lord's brother, and I'm convinced of this. Uh, For various reasons, I'm just going to give you some uh, scriptures here that would point to it being the Lord's brother. And I want us to home in on this, and the reason why we're going to pause right at the very start and think about James and why he's writing, and how he's writing, and to whom he's writing, is because it demonstrates the wonderful grace of God in the life of someone. And we're there ourselves, aren't we, enjoying the grace of God. Mark 6 verse 3 it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Was the question that people asked when the Lord Jesus started to do his teaching and his miracles. They're like, 
this is the carpenter. We're used to this man being the one who would uh, take wood and build things for us. But here he is doing these things. And here's his mother. And these are his brothers. And James is listed there. Probably because he was the next eldest. No mention of Joseph. Probably because we think Joseph had probably died by that point. We get an interesting insight to who James and his other brothers and sisters uh, were like and what they would have been thinking in John 7. It tells us in John 7 that when the Feast of the Booths was, Feast of Booths was near, the Feast of Tabernacles, his brothers mockingly said to Jesus, you need to go up to Jerusalem with your disciples because the things that you're doing here in your homeland, the things you're teaching and the things that you're doing as miracles, you can't keep them quiet. You need to go and do this in Jerusalem as well if you really want to be recognized. There's mockery there. But John says, as a summary of what we find at the beginning of John 7, he says not even his own brothers were believing in him. Not even his own brothers were believing in him. That's interesting for a man that spent most of his life in a house with Jesus. Here's a man that's struggling with the identity of who Jesus is, not just him, but his brothers as well. There was another occasion, you might remember, where it says that Jesus was in the house and he was teaching people and there were miracles being done that says the message came to him, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Tells us in one of the accounts of that that they thought he'd lost his mind. So here was Jesus embarking on his service for God, particularly around about the age of 30. And as that begins, people are wondering who he is. And not only that, those who were closest to him during his years of growing up are also in that camp as well. Now, I don't think we can put Mary in there, but we're going to park that one for the moment. But his brothers and his sisters from these statements weren't believing in Jesus and what he was claiming and who he was claiming to be and the things he was saying and doing. That's telling. We don't know when that might have changed for James, when he changed from a disbelief and an unbelief uh, to believing. And maybe we're pointed to it in 1 Corinthians 15. You know that start of that wonderful chapter about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how Paul says that the resurrection of Christ is absolutely fundamental for our faith uh, in this life and for eternity. At the beginning of that, to give um, proof and evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, he lists the people to whom Jesus appeared after his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he goes through the list and it says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He appeared to the twelve, and we have that at the end of the, the Gospels. And then we're into other uh, appearances that aren't testified in the Gospels but are given to us. He appeared to more than 500 men and women at one time. And then listen to this. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and then finally appeared to me. So James that's listed there is James, the Lord's brother. Now, I delight in the grace of God right at the very beginning of this. That this James, who was a disbelieving half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ came face to face with the resurrected Lord Jesus. And there's the grace of God and the grace of Christ. That Christ would find him as, in a sense, the new head of the family and because he was the next eldest and he appeared to him. And James was of absolutely no doubt then as to the identity and the person of the Lord Jesus. And we're preaching the gospel of the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. People have to come face to face with the resurrected Christ. It's not enough to leave them at the cross. 
Yes, we must go there. And maybe James was, was in the vicinity, though it's interesting the Lord appeals to John and says, Behold your mother. And maybe James was somewhere else, witnessing what was going on when Christ was crucified. It's not enough for us just to leave people at the cross. Of course it's vital because it's there that the justice of God is seen as Christ is suffering for our sin, of course, that righteousness then might come to us. But it would mean nothing if Christ did not come through the grave and was resurrected. So the living Saviour is the one that people have to encounter today. And that's the grace of God, that we've come to encounter the resurrected Lord. It was the same thing for James. And it seems as though the Lord picked him out. He appeared to him and James was never the same again. In fact, James rose to a prominence in the early church of God in Jerusalem as we read about it in Acts. Not because he was the brother of the Lord, though that was referenced in a couple of places. It wasn't because of that. He rose to a prominence because he was absolutely convinced of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he declares that in the opening phrase of what we've read. But we'll come to it in a moment. We turn to Acts 15. And we read there about something that became a trouble in the early churches. As, as the churches of God were spreading out into Gentile areas. And Gentiles were coming to faith. Before that, for a long time, it had been predominantly a Jewish movement, if we can call it that. But as it went up to Antioch and people were, were believing, there were Jews that were coming up and saying, you need to be circumcised to really be a believer. So Paul and Barnabas were sent down uh, to Jerusalem uh, in Acts 15 to debate this with the elders and the apostles that were there gathered in Jerusalem. And it tells us that James, in a sense, presided over the proceedings there. We refer to it as the first conference of overseers, or the council, as many titles in your Bible would have. But you have a man there who seems to listen to everything and then says on behalf of everyone, this seems to be where this conversation has gone. And we get more of an insight there into the prominence of position that James had and how he is regarded. They then sent a letter back with Paul and Barnabas to not just to Antioch, but to all the churches that they would travel through and meet with what had been decided during that gathering of the elders. And James is the one probably behind it who says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they recognize this was a working of the Holy Spirit of God. But there's James sitting possibly as a chairman, uh, presiding over the council and pulling things together. So there's the grace of God in the life of a man who is an unbeliever. We've all been there, all unbelievers. But yet when we come face to face with the resurrected Christ, life takes on a different uh, trajectory then, doesn't it? And it can bring us into positions where we can be reputed, as Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 9, Paul says that when he went up to Jerusalem on one of his visits after his conversion, it says that he met with James, the Lord's brother, Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars. Here were men who were pillars in early churches of God. Strong. And James is listed as one of the first in there. It can't have been James, the brother of John, because he'd lost his life to Herod. When Paul goes up there, he meets these men who are pillars. Isn't it wonderful that God will take us from the lowest of places as unbelievers, doubting who the Lord Jesus is 
And he brings us to a place where we can be strong and pillars in that which is a glory to God on earth today. Now this just doesn't apply to men. This applies to women as well. So let's apply this rightly. We're to be pillars. And you go back and you look into Old Testament scriptures where it speaks of women being strong in the Lord's things. That's what we have here. And that's what speaks to me from this. This is James. And this is God's grace in his life that makes him into this pillar. Notice how he refers to himself though. He doesn't say, James, uh, the brother of the Lord Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the sense of the word servant there is a bond servant. It's, it's strong. It's not the sense of slave as we would understand it, but it's somebody who has been purchased for a price uh, to perform duties within a household, who would have rights and privileges uh, as part of that setup. It's not the slavery that was abolished that we're thinking of where people had no rights. It's not that, but it's somebody who was the possession of the master of the house. And that's what James is saying he is. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm God's possession by God's grace. But not only that, look at how he equates the person that he grew up with in the house. Look at where he puts him. He puts him equal with God. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant of both. And notice his use of the full title and name of the Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful grace of God to bring him from disbelief and unbelief into absolute conviction as to who Christ was and is. The Lord over all. Jesus the Saviour, Christ the anointed Messiah who had come from God as God had promised. Here he is and this is who James says he is. I was thinking of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the same chapter that speaks about the resurrection and what a difference that means to the lives of people. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We can all say that. By the grace of God, we are what we are. Thank God for that. For James, it was the same thing. He says, I'm God's possession and I'm the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will do what he asks and because the rights and the privileges that I have, not just as a bondservant, but as a child of God because of Christ, are beyond what this world has to offer. So I will give my life. There's the servant heart of James that comes through. And it's all because of the grace of God. He is what he is because of the grace of God. Who are the recipients to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations? Uh, the word is dispersed and um, you find it in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1 as well, when Peter is writing to those that are dispersed among the nations. When James was writing this letter, which was a general letter that would have been circulated uh, around churches of God and to Christians in those early days, um, predominantly the composition of the churches of God was Jewish. It took a while for them to realise that God had purposes for the Gentiles. You wonder at the slowness whenever the Lord had said to them, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. You wonder at their slowness, but things took time to grow. And I think that's important to see as well, that God takes time over something that it has strength and solidity and it moves forward at, at his timing. But this is in these early days, probably within 
15 to 20 years of the Lord's death and resurrection and his return to glory. This is when James is writing and he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations and immediately the 12 tribes makes you think of Israel. So you're thinking Jewish people. And I am sort of sitting a little bit here with um, wondering, is that really who he's writing to? Probably it is. He's probably writing to Jewish believers, knowing that they, in their gatherings with other Jews, will, will probably have the opportunity to speak to other Jews about the Messiah and the identity of the Lord. But I also wonder if he's referring here just generally to Christians who are scattered because of persecution that arose when Stephen was stoned. You remember that incident in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, Stephen lost his life because he stood up to the Sanhedrin. That's in reality what happened. And it says that because of the persecution that happened, people were scattered. Now, it predominantly would have been Jews, but I believe that there would have been Gentiles in there too. Because there were individuals that we read of who would have come to faith. Now, the reason I say that, and... I'm laying this alongside the traditional view that he's writing to Jewish believers who are dispersed um, because of that persecution. I'm saying that I think it's also speaking generally of Christians who are scattered. And it's because they're not in the place where their citizenship is. Think about it. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. And where are we? We're scattered as they were then, were scattered in a place that's not really our home. And here's a need for encouragement to come to these people. So in a double sense, yes, he could well have just been writing to Jews of the 12 tribes, but I believe also he was writing to Christians, any who had come to faith. They were scattered in the nations at that time, in the early days of the spread of Christianity, to encourage them in their lives. You can research this yourselves a little bit. Galatians 6 verse 16. Paul <coughs> makes reference to the Israel of God today. And he's not just speaking of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's speaking of all those who by faith are now God's people. It's the same language we get to in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Where he has written to, the, to those that are dispersed. He then says in 1 Peter 2. He says now you are God's race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. I believe that's encompassing more than Jews. He's speaking there, of course, of believers in the Lord Jesus, though Peter's letter is quite a bit later than James's. So we have this sense that James is writing to those who have faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ, who need encouragement in their circumstances, wherever they are in the nations. How they got the letter round, I don't know, but it got round. And what an encouragement it would have been. <coughs> what was the purpose for their writing. I should say that dating this, most have said that they think this is before AD 50 when this is written. So if we are operating around AD 33 as a date for the, the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're within 17 years of that. The reason for that is that they believe that the Jerusalem Council referred to in Acts 15 occurred around AD 49. And there's no reference here in James's writing to anything that was said in that conference, which would be an odd thing to leave out since he'd had a prominent position in it. You'd think he would have taught something about it, but it's not there. So most would put it earlier than that. So maybe the latest is AD 46, 47. So this is to Christians within 15 years. 
of the Lord's death and resurrection. Now, for most of us, many of us, we're still in the formative years of our, of our conversion. Uh, so the things that James is writing are relevant to us too, and I need to get on to them. What was the purpose for his writing? He was encouraging them because they were facing hardship for living as Christians. Wherever it was they were, James was assuming they were finding it hard. Now, I take encouragement in this because he's very, very practical doesn't necessarily take us into deep doctrinal matters but he takes us into the practicalities of what it means to live as a Christian in whatever environment we find ourselves and he draws out so much that we're going to look at over the over the uh, coming weeks that's important for us today this is probably the earliest of the letters that were written uh, as encouragements to early Christians isn't it telling that the earliest of the letters that goes out is to tell people how to live as believers of the Lord Jesus? How to live that life that Christ had come to give? I think it's telling. Yes, there's doctrine in there, of course, but it's the reality of living the Christian life in our circumstances here and now. Now, in addition to me saying that it's possible that these people were scattered because of the persecution that was associated with uh, the death of Stephen and afterwards maybe they'd moved and they'd found another place to settle and they were away from the very sharp face of that persecution you know real persecution for Christians didn't come till later much later when Rome really started and that's when Paul is writing and Peter is writing and they're writing about times that are much darker than this I'm wondering just from the sense of this if it's in a general sense a low level persecution if I can call it that it's uh, it's a bit like today for us. That's why I enjoy James. It's maybe the things of social rejection because they're maybe left out of things of a social life and business life because they're believers in the Lord Jesus in this new um, religion that seems to be appearing. Maybe that's part of the circumstances these people find themselves. But this is to be expected. This sort of maybe social rejection or awkwardness that people feel. It's a persecution, yes, but it's, it's a low-level thing. It's not in the face of the threat of life, I don't think. That's not the sense we get from James here. But we're to expect this because the Lord said, as believers, we would. He said in John 16, verse 33, he said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Speaking to his disciples, he says, your life is going to have trouble because you're a believer. Earlier he had said to them in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. We have to expect, as believers in the Lord Jesus, persecution, even in its mild and low-level sense, if we can call it that. And that's why I believe James is so appropriate and relevant to us today. Are we facing persecution? For sure we are. We live in an increasingly secular culture where belief in God is considered crazy. And we are bombarded just with a general sense of this secular society that would repeatedly tell us that we don't need to believe that. We just need to believe everything that's natural and what science would tell us. 
And, you know, it brings doubts. Let's be honest. It brings doubts. Are there not times when you're sitting there thinking, yeah? It's because that's not the way the world has gone. Uh, secularization takes us down that, that route away from God. Any belief in God is, is being seen as a weak thing. And instead, we have the enlightenment of the answers that are provided by science and so on. We can't go into that. But it's a low-level persecution because it comes at us and it bombards us. And we therefore have doubts. So the message of James's letter uh, moves right into that. Let's take this then. He says from verse 2 onwards, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So to those who are facing that situation, James says, be mature, keep growing up. That's what he's getting at in this first uh, section and paragraph that he's writing about. The NIV, which says, consider it pure joy, is not really the proper sense of it. It's consider it all joy. So look at your circumstances. Whenever you're facing trials of various kinds, whatever is going on, consider it all joy. Because God is doing a work in you. The mention of trials and temptations is here in chapter 1. The reason I read on to verse 18 is because the word uh, temptations features from verse 13 onwards. Trials is there in the earlier section. You know, they're actually from the same Greek word. It just depends how you interpret them in their context. Whether we see them as a trial or a temptation. I want to spend quite a lot of time next week on the matter of temptation. But let's, let's try and define what we're understanding here of these, these trials of many kinds that are referred to. Um, a trial... The sense of it is focusing on something which is coming at us from outside. It's an external uh, set of circumstances that comes at us. But it's to be endured so that our faith will be stronger. A temptation, I think, focuses on the inward reaction that we have to the external circumstances. And temptation is to be resisted. You see the difference? A trial is to be endured because God is doing something through it. A temptation, most likely which has its origin in the adversary, is to be resisted. The sense of the word is it's a thing to test. Just like when you're studying and you have to sit your exams at the end of the, the quarter or the semester or the year, whatever it is. It's not done just um, for the sake of being awkward. It's done that you might test what it is that you've you've gone through to that period in time it's to test and to prove that you've gained the understanding that would be expected by that point and that's the sense whenever we're talking here in these earlier verses about the trials of many kinds and God permitting circumstances in our lives and I think that's all circumstances some may be more difficult to endure than others but whatever circumstances come at us under God's sovereign plan he is testing the quality of our faith and also bringing us to a fuller maturity as a Christian through them. So the sense of trial is that it's something that God brings. That we might at the end of it be mature and complete. Not lacking anything. That's what God is after whenever we encounter the circumstances around us. As we'll see next week when we get on to temptation. When something comes at us and our inward response then uh, gives birth to sin. That very vivid imagery there. 
That's something else. And that takes us away and proves the, the evil of our nature. And God doesn't want us to go there. He wants us to rest and rely on him. That's why in verse 12 it says, having stood the test. God says these circumstances are coming at you. Some of them are difficult, some of them are not. But it's so that your faith may be tested and proven and tried. Because you know that when that happens, you'll have perseverance or steadfastness. You'll be the stronger for it. Sometimes people run from this and say, I don't want that sort of life. The Lord said you'll have it if you live for me. But we come and through the circumstances, our faith is to be in God. And as we do that and exercise our faith in him, then we become stronger and mature. It's achieved through trial. Not a specific set of circumstances, but the whole of our circumstances, I believe. Maturity and spiritual fulfillment. As a Christian matures, they're exercising a stronger faith in the God who knows everything about their circumstances and the God who is able to do anything. That is what I think James is getting at. He says, whatever your life seems to be throwing at you, you grow up, to borrow the language of other New Testament writers, you grow up in your faith and you rest your life in who God is and exercise your solid faith in the reliability and faithfulness of God. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. James says in verse 12. We'll spend time on it next week. Um, but 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. Same word is used there by Paul. No temptation. Uh, translated temptation. There, No temptation has ever has overtaken you. But as such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted. Beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. That you may be able to endure it. So here's things coming together. God knows what we're able to bear. And he provides us, through him, all that we need to be stronger in our faith for him. Now, you go back and consider the situation of Job. And God in his sovereign purposes permitted something there, which was for God's glory ultimately. But he had to pass through trial and much difficulty. Let's move on to the next section. Not lacking anything? I'd love to be a believer that doesn't lack anything. Now, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So, we have a progression in James's thought here. A very useful thing for understanding the developing thought of New Testament writers, in particular Paul, but James as well, is to work in paragraphs. They make a statement and then they'll develop it further in the next paragraph quite often. This is one of those. So these are all linked down to verse 12, I believe. So he, he sets the scene. He says, you're facing all of this. and God wants you to be mature and complete. Your faith rests in him. And he says, don't be like this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now we take this scripture and we, we take it all the time. And I've, I'm guilty of this and saying, I need wisdom, God. But we ask God and he gives generously. I'm thankful that God does give generously. And the word is without reproach or without finding fault. It's not, 
it's not a situation where uh, you go and you ask for something and you just get a whole pile of grief. Sometimes Sam will come and ask me for things and I'll end up berating him for the reason why he's asked me and such like because it demonstrates a weakness on his part as such an immature young man and all that. There's no sense of that with God at all. God is saying here, and James is saying uh, through his experience of God, he says, you come to God if you're lacking wisdom and God will give generously and without reproach, not finding fault with you. In fact, God is glorified when you ask. Ask for what? Wisdom? It's not just wisdom out of um, any context. The context here is wisdom in our <coughs> circumstances. It's not just having the knowledge that God is great and good and perfect and sovereign. It's not just that. It's asking God that, God, can I please apply that knowledge in my circumstances? You know that the definition of wisdom has often been said. It's, it's knowledge that's applied to a circumstance. It's not just something that stays in your head that doesn't impact how you act, but it's your knowledge that then uh, determines your response to a situation. That's the sense of it here. James is saying, ask for that wisdom from God that you might not just know in your head who God is and that God is sovereign, but you might know him in the circumstances. And God will not find fault. It will be given to you. I love the truth that God is glorified when we come and we ask him for help. Think about it. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And God is glorified in that. God is glorified whenever he is God. And who is God? God is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. So when we, as those who are created and sustained by him, come and say, God, I need your help in these circumstances, God says, of course, because God is glorified in it. And God serves God serves through the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our experience. And in that brings us to a deeper understanding and maturity of who he is. Now, let's deal with this section here about uh, verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. I don't believe the doubt here is the doubt of coming with a prayer to God and saying, well, God might, might answer this. He's stronger than this, is James. James is saying... You don't be a person who's double-minded because it goes on to that. Don't be a double-minded person, unstable in everything. And the sense of it here is that you're living life mainly relying on the things of your own strength and the things that the world can give you and you've got God there just as a sort of backup just in case. That's not who we're to treat God as. It's not us thinking we have priority and God is there just in case. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 as well about the resurrection of Christ. It's not just for this life, and if it is, then we're most pitied. Paul says, absolutely guaranteed that Jesus is alive and is in heaven, and for that reason I'll live for him. It's the same thing here that James is saying. Don't be doubting. It's this double-mindedness that he's getting at. He says, you don't have your mind in the world, and then at times you bring God into circumstances. Not that at all. It's, he's appealing here and challenging us to single-minded devotion to God so that we're not unstable. Notice the instability is not just related to uh, the asking here. This is why I think James takes us to this point and God does through his word. It's unstable in all they do. A person who uh, relies on the world and the circumstance of their lives and then has God as a backup 
is unstable in everything they do. You can see it. It's evidenced. The life sort of flits around and moves and so on. And isn't it wonderful that he uses that metaphor of a wave in the sea? Um, other versions of the Bible put it more strongly. The surf of the sea, which is driven by the wind. I mean, the sea is a, is a wild thing anyway. And that's the description we have. We have this sense of outside of that, that wild, powerful motion uh, of life. Then the wind comes in the trial of circumstance and it can blow the tops of the surf and so on uh, wider we've seen it when a wave is breaking you see the wind when it's howling it lifts the surf off the top out of control and that's the sense of what james is getting at here if you're living with your focus on the world and a little bit of god in there then you're just going to be like that blown and carried wherever don't be like it let's be mature and complete not lacking anything and when we come and we're asking we're not doubting, thinking that, well, God's my backup. I've really got this covered myself. Now, there's a challenge to how we pray. Let's move on to the last little section. Verses 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Why did James then go into this? It's not a distinct um, new thought. It's related to the previous. He's saying whatever your circumstances are, believers, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you be strong in your faith in the almighty God for absolutely everything. And he's saying for the poor person, believers in humble circumstances, that's the sense of it, people who don't have much of the earth's possessions, he says, if you're in those humble circumstances, what do you take pride in? Or, or what is the thing that you glory in? Which is the sense of the word, you glory in the high position that is yours as a child of God, securing Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. Nothing can touch that. And then the rich person. Uh, he goes a little bit more at the rich person. But the rich person should take pride in their humiliation. The humiliation is not the sense of being made to feel bad about something. It's realising somebody coming to the realization and understanding that the things that they have that this life gives to them that's not their life i realize that's nothing and it's transient it's passing away instead god has made me realize that and i now trust him for everything that's the humiliation that's been spoken about the humbling of our attitude no longer resting on the things of this world so you can see how all this I think you can see how all this fits together. God is wanting us to absolutely trust him, whatever our circumstances are. Rich, poor, in between, whatever. And not allow those circumstances to be the thing that dictates how we live. Because if that's the case, then we'll just be tossed here, there and everywhere. Unstable in all our ways. Why? Because he wants us to be mature and complete. Not lacking anything. Because... Someone who lives that way is giving the glory to God. Notice how he employs the language of Isaiah 40 here. James is um, good at taking us back to the Old Testament and to the words of the Lord Jesus as well. He says, he borrows that language that the scorching heat comes and takes away. But notice, importantly, the thing that's taken away is not the riches. It's the person themselves. So written to Christians, those who put their trust 
in the things of this world and in their own strength and have God as a sort of backup there in the background just in case their life is a waste. That's important to see. He's not speaking about the riches. He's speaking about the person. The same way the rich will fade away while they go about their business. Don't waste your life. Caught up with the circumstances of life that come at you. If you have riches or if you don't, don't be caught up with that. Be caught up with God so that your life is not a wasted fading away. Please. I think that's the appeal that James is getting at. And then to finish, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. I'm going to use this as the springboard into next week. So I'm not going to say much on it now, but notice this in it. Blessed is the one. Where does that take you? It takes you back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. <coughs> or it takes you to the, the Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Was James there? Who knows? But I'm sure he heard it. Blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. Repeatedly. The Lord says, the most fulfilled and happy and joyful experience are those who live in the way that James is encouraging the people here to live. And he says, blessed is the one who perseveres, stands strong in this external trial that's coming, having stood the test, so having come through a circumstance, what? That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So those that love the Lord are going to persevere in trial. And because they love the Lord, because in the Lord they have everything. And they don't love the things of the world. There you go. That's what I think James is getting at right at the beginning. He says you be strong, you be mature. In your circumstances, and it's so relevant to us because the circumstances are very similar. You trust God for everything. Don't have him there. Just as a fallback and a backup position. And if you love him, you'll persevere in the trial. And through it, you'll know the blessing of God. And you'll be a blessing to others. To God's glory. Let's pray.